I want a, I want a retraction on that last podcast, La, where in the comment section uh-huh. you said that you apologised about the mistake. About the correct, you put correction. Did, did There's I, no did, correction. Did, did I say that? In the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the description section for the morbid obesity. Oh, correction about cardiac output. Oh, I'm going to no. take that out. Not, not to say correction, just maybe put uh, note. Note. <laughs> there we go. Note. Miller's C, chapter 20. See C, C next. See next episode. Hi, everyone. It's time for another episode of Anesthesia Coffee Break. I'm Lahiru. And I'm Stan. And today we're going to talk about the mechanisms that facilitate oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange in the placenta. As always, read the disclaimer in the notes stating that this is a medical discussion, should not be applied to any individual patient without appropriate consultation with your treating team. But first, Lahiru, what performance tip do you have for us today? So as I was um, going through before, James Clear has written a book about atomic habits, I'll go through the laws of behavior change because that's essentially what we're trying to do with this exam. It's an intense experience and we have to learn so much information and we have to make sure that we've got the right habits in place to learn efficiently and effectively. So this first law of behavior change is make it obvious. And what I love about this is they actually give really concrete examples of what to do. And one of the best ways to build this new habit is to identify a current habit that you already do every day and then stack your new behavior. This is called habit stacking, funnily enough. So the formula is after current habit, I will new habit. So after this habit, I'll do this new habit. And, you know, just to note that two of the most common cues for this are really just time and location. Um, So, you know, being able to pair a new habit with something you already do in a specific time and location is probably the key to this. Now, I thought we'd go through maybe a few of the habits that may have been successful or what we suggest you could do in the first part context. So, for example, I found going through what I learned the day before really useful. And so something you could do is, you know, everyone eats breakfast in the morning and it's very easy to eat breakfast and have the notes you had for learning from the day before just next to you. And just repeat that. Just have a look at them, memorize something, that you, memorize some little point that you can take away And what I've done with that statement is I'm saying at a location and a place, I'll do this after I do this. So after eating breakfast at the dining table in the morning, I will go through yesterday's notes. So so do you write this down and do you do this every day or or how does it work to make it a consistent habit? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think in the book, they don't necessarily say to write it down, but... I feel like there'll be lots of habits that you need to rapidly increase in doing during this exam. It's probably worthwhile to jot them and just slowly integrate them. And even this ability of stacking a habit onto a habit. So it might be useful to just have a list of things that you would like to achieve and habits you'd like to adopt and then slowly pair them into your life. One of the things I actually talk about is just writing out a diary of all the actions you do. It doesn't take too long. You just literally write down all the things you do and you'll see quite a number of habits that just end up occurring over the week, over the day, over the, you know, over the hours in your timeline of your life. And then you can just slowly pair appropriate habits to appropriate situations in places and times. So I think, I think you're right that while the book doesn't necessarily say write these things down, this is an environment and this is a situation, the first part exam, we have to adopt so many good habits very rapidly. It's probably worthwhile writing it down and mm-hmm. stating it out loud. So give us an example from the audience of something that you've done in the past or even recently where you've adopted this strategy and how it sort of changed 
the way that you approach the things that you do. That's a good one. I'm actually, so one of the things I did do, which has really been effective, is every time I have a shower, I'll floss my teeth. Okay. Yeah. Is, yeah, that, that, is that weird? No, it's important to floss your teeth. <laughs> so this might sound a little bit silly and frivolous to the audience, but this is, an, this is a really good example because it's been super effective. My mum was actually a dentist and she's always been telling me, you've got to floss your teeth. And so it's something I used to do, but it's not something I've always done absolutely religiously. There's periods of time I've done it really effectively. And I thought, you know what? I really want to get this habit. I, I think dental hygiene is important. I think health is important. Yep. Yep. And so what I did was every time I have a shower, so once a day I'll have a shower, I will just floss in the shower. There you go. And uh, yeah, so I'm sure my dentist will be really happy. <laughs> uh, Sam, if you're listening. <laughs> I floss every day. There you go. And, <laughs> and that's been something really- that, yeah, it's something that you, you've incorporated now into your daily routine mm. and it's become a part of your daily routine now. Absolutely. And and just to think the other, the reason why that was so easy to do is that, you know, I enjoy having a shower. A nice hot shower is a really enjoyable thing to do. And flossing lets me enjoy that a little bit longer. Obviously, I'm not having you know, 10 minute showers. Uh, but yes, this was a very successful creation of a habit. Mm. And I think it's important as well, where you described for our trainees how they can incorporate an example in terms of how you gave the example of how you were reviewing your notes uh, and after breakfast yes. on the dining table. And one of the things that I think is also important is to be flexible with, with the habits that you create because mm-hmm. with our jobs, it's so variable, mm-hmm. isn't it? So, you know, there will be times sometimes where you won't be able to have breakfast mm-hmm. on your dining table the day after. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to know that you can create these habits mm-hmm. or create these statements even the day before mm-hmm. about something that you're going to do the day after. Yeah, and that's interesting. I, I think it's probably worthwhile sticking to the most regular tasks that you have to start with. Mm-hmm. I think as you get better with this stuff, yeah, being able to still do the habit regardless of your crazy timelines mm-hmm. and rosters is really valuable. Now, Stan, to put you on the spot, is there any? Have you are you good with habits? Have you done anything like this accidentally or just? So, so look, this is the part. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad you actually brought it up because I'll probably need some advice from you. This is the part that I struggle with. So I'm very good at creating habits and creating routines, which last for an X period of time. But what I struggle with is that when that routine gets broken, to mm. get back into it. Because what I find is that when, when I have that breaking routine, mm. I, I find that I just, it, I just totally lose it. Yeah. And, and what do you think some of the stress? So, so an example is running. Oh, I was about to say that. Yeah. yeah. We used to run together. We used to, yeah, we used to, yeah. <laughs> what happened? And in fact, what happened was that we, we did that really massive run, you know, that was it 10, 15K run. And then I just needed a couple of days to recover. Yeah. And that just snowballed from a couple of days to a couple of weeks yep. and might be a couple of months <laughs> now. But anyway, we're getting, getting back into it. Yes. But, you know, I, I, I've sort of realized that maybe, you know, sometimes maybe like, um, and I was having a chat to my sister-in-law about this the other day, that, that sometimes just doing maybe smaller runs mm. and not having to require that recovery session is actually better for me because then it doesn't actually break that habit. Yes. But I, I'll do admit on self-reflection that when my routine in terms of the habit is broken, yes. I do struggle to get back into it. That's a really good observation that to create this habit, you didn't need to do the large runs. Like that was probably a detriment as you observed. There's one example that this show is that success can be and developing this habit can be really, really, really effective, even if you just do it for a minute. So mm. literally, the example they give is this one person just went to the gym for literally two minutes and they weren't allowed to stay any longer. But then they created this routine. They would go, they'd do you know, just a little bit of something and then they'd leave. 
And that was enough to create a habit that they always went. Um, yes. So I think I completely agree. When you're starting out, it's short, very short, easy. Small goals, small achievable goals. Absolutely. That create success. I think it's positive affirmation that will snowball. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and in the morning, you know, if all you can do is, you know, wake up and just read one paragraph of something very small or just memorize five points. Yes. That, that's, that's plenty. That's more than most people are doing. Yes. All right, so today's question is number five from the 2020 February paper. It says, describe the mechanisms that facilitate oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange in the, in the placenta. So Lars going to go through this uh, question. So Lars, tell us about the anatomy. Yeah, so the anatomy is really, really interesting. I think anyone that studied the placental circulation first looks at it and goes, okay, wow, there's a whole bunch of circuits there and there's various connections that weren't there before, like the, um, you know, patent foramen ovale and the ductus arteriosus, as well as the fact that this is, you know, this extra organism, this extra organ that's literally just the lungs to the fetus. So interestingly, a few points here. The placenta is parallel with the circulation to the tissues in the fetus. About 55% of the fetal cardiac output reaches the placenta, you know, obviously really important, via the umbilical artery. That is interesting to contrast that with your own circulation, where pretty much 100% of your circulation goes through your lungs. So already the fetus is at a bit of a disadvantage for gas exchange. Now, this is deoxygenated blood. So the umbilical artery takes deoxygenated blood, so PaO2 of 20 millimeters mercury with SATs of 58%, and then it returns with an increase, say, 30 millimeters mercury and SATs of 80%. Fetal blood flow to the placenta is about 300 mils per minute. And then the mother is slightly different, obviously. So the uterine arteries carry oxygenated maternal blood, PaO2 of 100 millimeters mercury, SATs of, you know, 97.5, to the placenta, and this is about 600 mils per minute. I think this is always an interesting thing because when you think about how much cardiac output is going to the placenta, that's why when you ever have a postpartum hemorrhage, a PPH, or any kind of uterine rupture or massive blood loss case, that is a really big deal that there's a lot of blood going there and you need to do whatever you can to resuscitate and stop the bleeding. Massive. And, and look, those are some really accurate numbers that you have. And I think it's fantastic. And um, just for the audience, and I think as a, what I do as a sort of a memory bank is to um, create patterns. Yes. So what I'll do is, um, you, so you're saying the uterine arteries carry oxygenated maternal blood with a PO2 of 100. I will say that the SATs are 100%. Beautiful, okay? just for mnemonics. Just for mnemonics. So 100 and 100. And, and placental circulation um, from there, 600 mils a minute, okay? And then when we talk about the fetus, okay, mm. fetal, fetal blood flow is half. Mm. It's only 300 mils. And your deoxygenated blood is 20, but the SATs will be half. I know you said 58%, but you could just, you could just say SATs are half of that of the mothers. Mm -hmm. So 50%, all right? Beautiful. I'm actually going to go through a table later where we'll oh, see some of these patterns as well. But, yeah. you know, let's... Uh, and the audience will take patterns and um you know let's say my patterns will be slightly different to stands that's okay we'll that's all right. make our own patterns but yeah. i i really love the fact that you're making these links 600 300 yeah. 100 120 50. 50 that's fantastic yeah. uh so in the mother the blood enters the placenta and forms intervillous sinusoids i love that term intervillous sinusoids or lakes of blood and if you've ever seen a placenta come out it really feels like it's this you know it's this lake structure that's you know tied together with tissue the villi contain branches of the umbilical arteries and veins from the fetal circulation and they project into these sinusoids. So 
How does the placenta transfer oxygen? It just doesn't seem to have the anatomy of the lung for the gas exchange. Yeah, exactly. So as we mentioned, it's already at a huge disadvantage and the placenta functions in place of the adult lung to provide this oxygenated blood to the fetus. So it has to, it's got a bit of an uphill battle. The fetal blood arriving at the placenta, as we mentioned, has a PaO2 of 20 millimeters mercury, sats of 58%, and leaves with the umbilical vein with a PVO2 of 30 millimeters mercury and sats of 80%. Exchange is from maternal blood via this blood vein barrier across thick cellular layers of villi. So, you know, this layer is 3.5 micrometers and it's so much thicker than the alveolar gas alveolar blood gas barrier, which is about 0.5 micrometers. So, so seven times, seven times thicker. Seven times thicker, yeah. And that's huge. This, you know, this is a significant difference. The surface area for transfer also significantly lessened the placenta, you know, three to four square meters versus 50 to 100 square meters. Again, that's a huge difference, you know, 25 fold, up to 25 fold difference from the adult lung. And a lot of these things can be described very succinctly with Fick's law of diffusion where you've got that formula, flow is area over thickness times D, which is the diffusion constant, times the pressure differential P1 take away P2. And D, the diffusion constant, is solubility over the square root of molecular weight. And so if we plug those numbers in, you know, A is 3 to 4 square meters, D is 3.5 micrometers, P1 take away P2, the pressure differential, is the uterine artery minus the umbilical artery, 100 take away 20 millimeters mercury. And so, you know, despite the placenta being less efficient at gas exchange, there's a lot of factors that aid oxygenation of the fetus. And that's where, you know, we talk about what these differences are. So, you know, essentially to highlight these points in order, you have HBF or fetal hemoglobin, you have high hemoglobin levels, there is a significant oxygen partial pressure gradient, 100 to 20, and you have the double bore effect for enhancing its affinity to oxygenation. To go through those in order, Increased affinity of hemoglobin, fetal hemoglobin for oxygen is due to the decreased binding of 2,3-DPG and therefore left shift of the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve. Um, and, you know, before birth, fetal hemoglobin is about 90% of hemoglobin. So that's a really important factor. There are a lot of interesting facts about that. Also, that it has a high HB. So, you know, you can mention the level of, uh, you know, hemoglobin levels in the fetus. I think there's about 170. And then the significant O2 partial pressure difference between maternal blood at 100 and fetal blood at 20. Again, that's numbers that are very worthwhile mentioning. About the double bore effect. So this effect, the bore effect is really CO2 loading decreases the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen and CO2 unloading increases that oxygen affinity. So that's really interesting. So exactly when you need more affinity for oxygen, um, you get it. And when you don't, you get that as well. So this you know, ultimately just operates exactly as how you want this to, to operate. So what's really interesting is that the bore effect is operating both maternal and fetal circulations. So for example, fetal hemoglobin, as it's going towards the placenta, it loses CO2, but it's trying to offload CO2 so that the maternal circulation can get rid of it and therefore increases its affinity of oxygen. So then, you know, the, that fetal hemoglobin is taking on more oxygen. So that means the curve moves to the left. So that's great. But on the maternal side, maternal hemoglobin gains CO2 and that decreases its affinity of oxygen. So now it's offloading more oxygen into the fetal circulation and that curve moves to the right. And then this net effect of that is that you've got these fetal and maternal hemoglobin curves, oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curves moving even further apart than if it was just one system. Mm -hmm. So now there's an increased gradient for oxygen diffusion 
and enhanced transfer of oxygen from mother to fetus. You've described it really well, and, and I just want to summarize for the audience. So, um, Lars has said that the fetal hemoglobin has got a high affinity, so it's going to be on the left-hand side of your hemoglobin dissociation curve compared to maternal hemoglobin. Okay, so remember that fetal hemoglobin starts on the left, um, on the left of maternal hemoglobin. Okay, and then the other thing that uh, La talked about was the double bore effect. So remember that fetal hemoglobin comes through through the umbilical artery, and when you get that curve moving to the left, it's with the umbilical vein. Okay, and conversely, when you look at maternal hemoglobin, it's coming through on the uterine artery, and it's moving to the right, okay, as it, um, as it gains CO2. And, that, and that's done through the uterine vein. All Perfect. right. So you've, you've described it really well, and that's how you would um, sort of show it graphically. Now, you want to talk about the transplacental uh, sort of gas exchange for CO2? The fetus is already at a disadvantage for oxygenation. And so we're trying to, there's all these effects that improve it to the best that it can be. But also CO2 exchange also has these um, you know, particular things that aid CO2 transfer. So the factors that affect or assist CO2 transfer across the placenta are really two things. One, maternal hyperventilation, and two, the double Haldane effect. So just to go through those in detail, maternal hyperventilation due to the effect of progesterone on the respiratory centers. So you have this low maternal PaCO2 due to increased minute ventilation in pregnant patients. So you get increased gradient favoring CO2 transfer. Now, the fetal umbilical artery has a PaCO2 of about 50, whereas the maternal uterine artery has a PaCO2 of about 32 millimeters mercury. And this is less than, you know, the normal value of about 40. So you've got an increased gradient. This really assists in transfer. And you can, again, talk about fixed lower diffusion and that equation again. And then second of all, the double Haldane effect. So the Haldane effect is all about deoxygenated blood carrying more CO2 than oxygenated blood due to, one, the increased ability of deoxyhemoglobin to form carbamina compounds. That's about 70% of the effect. And then the increased buffering ability of this deoxyhemoglobin and its ability to mop up H+, these protons, formed in the production of bicarbonate. And that's about 30% of the effect. So that's the double Haldane effect. So really, the Haldane effect facilitates, again, the transfer of CO2 from fetus to mother. As the maternal blood releases oxygen, it's able to carry more CO2 and as the fetal blood uptakes oxygen, it releases CO2. That is the double Haldane effect. So like that, that was a fantastic summary. Now, I think if you were to draw it graphically, there is a very good diagram in Power and Cam. The, the thing to note about the diagram in Power and Cam is that you need to look at the latest edition, so the fourth edition, which has it correct. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the prior editions, and I believe the second edition is completely wrong. That's right. So I've got the second edition here, page... 410 of the second edition has the umbilical artery and uterine artery in the wrong way around, as you mentioned. Stan. Yes, and and I think the third edition has the direct, even though they've got the labeling correct, I think they've got the direction wrong. But now we've, we're on to the fourth edition and it looks correct to me. Okay. That's fantastic. And, you know, these are the things I'm so glad. <laughs> this is probably the second textbook now we've picked up an error in, which is great. You know, we're all about improving. We're all about you know, making these corrections to make us uh, ourselves more correct, a little less wrong every day. Uh, so that's good to good to have that. Yeah, and and look, it's not uncommon to pick up errors in mm. textbooks, and I think that's one of the frustrations that you have as a trainee is that you take it as gospel. 
Mm. If it's in a textbook, it has to be 100% correct. Yep. And sometimes when we learn, we start learning these concepts and we go, oh, that doesn't actually make sense. And that's when you, I think it's very important to sort of cross-reference mm-hmm. these, um, uh, you know, these concepts and these graphs to make sure there's consistency of ideas. All yes. right? And if there's any inconsistency, I know it's very hard as a trainee to spend the time. Like you can't, you can't look, you can't run 32 simulations like me, like I did in the last episode mm-hmm. and try to find an answer. You don't have that time. You know, you don't, you don't have that luxury. Yes. But I think what you can do is you can approach us. Mm, that's right. Let yeah. us do the work. Yeah. I, I think we're going to change our names. We'll, we'll, we're now, we're called the debunkers now. Hey, <laughs> That's right. Actually, I don't want to make a correction. Stan will do the work and I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll reflect in his glow. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly. So let's go through the answer. The important thing is I'll also leave a table here in the notes or in the transcript just to show all the numbers. So you can, you know, you can find the patterns that make sense to you. But again, getting those patterns is really useful. Uh, for reproducing in the short answer or in the viva. Now, in the examiner's report, they talk about the main points expected were a description of how gases diffuse across the placenta with relevance to fixed law in comparison to the lungs. So we went through that, and it's really important for you to state that. It's pretty easy to state that too. A quantification of partial pressure differences for oxygen and carbon dioxide between the vessels. Again, having a table writing this out, really useful. Definitions with explanations for the Bohr and Haldane effects applied to the placental barrier. Again, we've gone through that. And graphical demonstrations could show the effect of these mechanisms on diffusion gradients. Now, additional credit was awarded for explaining the mechanism and significance of the Bohr and Haldane effects, understanding other factors which alter the partial pressure gradients, maternal changes by trimester, and the effects of blood flow on diffusion. Obviously, these are some extra points for you know maternal changes by tr- trimester. And I don't know necessarily whether I'd go into that detail. I could probably talk in general terms about that once I've got those main points and basics down pat. Again, this exam is about, you know, an average amount of knowledge in broad categories of information. And then if you can transfer specifics, that's great. To some more specialized information, that's great. Common errors included misconception that the gradient for oxygen transfer was derived from the uterine, uterine artery PO2, attributing the Bohr effect solely to CO2 binding to hemoglobin. And quoted values for the uterine and umbilical vessel gas pressures were frequently inaccurate, as were graphs, and there seemed to be many typos. For example, writing oxygen when CO2 is correct, or umbilical instead of uterine. Now, a good source for this material is Nunn's Respiratory Physiology and any of the general medical physiology recommended texts they also say. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you liked this podcast, please rate it and subscribe and share with anyone who's about to sit this exam or simply again loves physiology and pharmacology catch you next time